0: is it a sin is it a crime loving you dear like i do if it's a crime then i'm guilty guilty of loving you hi welcome to criminal broads a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law my name is tori telfer I am your friendly local author of a book called Confident Women, Swindlers, Grifters, and Shapeshifters of the Feminine Persuasion, which is out February 23rd. That is a mere. Let me quickly pull up my calendar and do the math. 18, 19, 20, Six days from today. <laughs> it comes out on Tuesday if you're listening to this, the week it came out. Um, that is a mere six days from today, and I am doing this particular episode of Criminal Broads on a con woman. This woman is actually in my book, so this is like a little sneak peek bonus content of my book for free for my listeners only. If you are not one of my listeners and you're listening to this, I don't know who you are, get out of here. This is just for my listeners. This episode is... Basically, an abbreviated version of a chapter in my book. Sorry if you can hear Cecil crying in the background. (laughs) It's close to bedtime. Um, This is an abbreviated version of the chapter in my book. I mean, don't worry, I'm giving you the full story here. I'm giving you lots of details, but, and I have to say this if you want even more details, you can pre order my book now at your favorite local bookstore or Put it on hold at your favorite library when it comes out. There are a lot more details involving this case that are in the book, including some wild stuff about, no big deal, Colin Powell and Brad Pitt. Now, this is a chapter about a fortune teller. So when she's telling you about Brad Pitt, let's just say Brad Pitt himself does not necessarily uh, agree to the narrative she's putting forth, okay? But Brad Pitt does make an appearance in this chapter. (laughs) Um, also, this story ends up in Florida again. I know we've been in Florida a lot lately. I, I this podcast used to do international cases sometimes. I know, but now we basically just do Florida. I don't know what you want me to tell you. I just I'm so I'm confused why you're yelling at me. Florida has really good stories. Okay, we're just we just need to chill in Florida for a while. That's what this podcast needs. Um, okay, one last thing about my book, and then I will maybe be quiet about it for a little bit. It is full of these stories of swindlers, of the feminine persuasion. So if you like this episode, please check it out. You'll meet people like a teenager from St. Louis who swindled the entire NFL, an orphan who pretended to be best friends with a little queen known as Marie Antoinette, and a soccer player's wife from Beijing who tricked a whole bunch of Olympic athletes. So check it out. And now we're going to break quickly for a word from our sponsor, and then we're going to get into this wild tale. This episode of Criminal Broads is sponsored by the audiobook edition of Faithless in Death by J.D. Robb. In the new Eve Dallas police thriller, what looked like a lover's quarrel turned fatal, okay, as if that's not bad enough, has larger and more terrifying motives behind it. This number one New York Times bestselling series is read by fan favorite narrator Susan Erickson. And Erickson transports listeners to New York City, where Eve and her team are facing a case that involves a sinister, fanatical group. Guys, are you getting some cult vibes here? We're into cult vibes. I mean, we're not into them, but we're intrigued by them. So it involves a sinister, fanatical group and a stunning criminal conspiracy. Harlan Coben calls the in-death novels can't-miss pleasures. And when it comes to the audiobooks, it is impossible to press pause. J.D. Robb's Faithless in Death audiobook is available now wherever audiobooks are sold. So many sad women in Manhattan. They were educated and successful and desperate. They had MBAs and books on the New York Times bestseller list and jobs in international finance. They had abusive husbands and drug-addled sons and mothers who were dying. Their daughters were depressed and their boyfriends were leaving them and their bodies were riddled with cancer. What could they do? These women had grown up believing that there was something more out there, something to cling to, and now, as they dragged their aching hearts through the city, something appeared in front of them. A little storefront, all lit up. The sign on the front read, Laws of Attraction Guided by Psychic Joyce Michaels, Walk-In's Welcome. Most customers walked in, paid $50 or so for a poem reading, and left. But when these sad women walked through the door, the psychic would perk up and come forward. How can I help you? She'd say. The sad women would pour out their problems. The psychic would listen intently and would then begin her ritual. I may be able to help, she'd say, but first I need a... Personal item to prey on and meditate. The loan of the personal item was like a trust fall. Would the sad woman do it? Did she have the nerve? The psychic would say something like, "What about that bracelet there on your wrist? Oh, it was given to you by your grandmother. Well, that's perfect." The next day, the sad woman would come back, and the bracelet would be there unharmed, and the sad woman would sigh with relief. But the psychic would have bad news. You've been cursed in a previous life, she'd say. Thus, the abusive husband, the cancer, or the dying mother. Then the good news. I can help you, she'd say. I'm here to do God's work, and the work is free. And then there was the catch. In the course of this work, she'd say, there are sacrifices that have to be made. Sacrifices? Yes. In the ancient days, the removal of a curse this serious would involve human sacrifice. (laughs) But these days, nobody was going to slaughter anyone, of course. No, no, no. These days, the item sacrificed was simply money. After all, money is the root of all evil, and so it must be cleansed. But once the curse is lifted, the money will be returned unharmed, just like the bracelet had been. Everything will be wonderful. The sad woman will be happy again. But first, there's an ATM across the street. On May 3, 1951, little Rose Eli was born into a world of spirit guides and second sight. Her ancestors were Roma, an ethnic group that migrated from India to Europe about 1,000 years ago, where they encountered persecution, slavery, and eventually slaughter by the Nazis. The Eli family came over to the USA from Greece around the turn of the 20th century. Rose grew up outside Newark, New Jersey, and her family pulled her out of school after only a few weeks in the third grade, leaving her nearly illiterate. Instead, she was taught a different set of skills—how to clean, how to cook, how to care for a husband, how to be a good daughter-in-law, and how to tell fortunes. Right away, she started to work in the family trade. Rose's mother was a psychic, so was her grandmother. For hundreds of years, the women in her family had inherited these skills. Rose called them a gift from God. The gift could be a curse, though. Rose had her first premonition of death at age nine. It was terrifying. She accurately predicted the day her grandma would die. Eventually, Rose grew up and married a man named Nicholas Marks. Together, they had three kids, and Rose worked as the breadwinner, using her gift. She made a lot of money with her gift. It was her birthright. There was never a question that she would do anything else. Never a chance, either. By the turn of the millennium, business was booming for Rose. She'd adopted the alias Joyce Michael and had opened up a place in Manhattan called Joyce Michael Astrology, It was pulling in a lot of very lucrative clients. She and her husband had moved down to southern Florida, where she'd opened up even more psychic storefronts and filled them with her kids and their spouses. Her whole family was making so much money. They bought expensive cars, flashy motorcycles, designer clothes, diamonds, extra bathrooms— Rose and her husband lived in a multi-million dollar glass-walled, seven-bedroom, nine-bathroom house on a palm tree-lined street right by the water in Fort Lauderdale, with a cream-colored 1977 Rolls Royce in the garage and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of jewelry in the many closets. They were making all that money because Rose was an extremely skilled fortune teller. Despite her lack of formal education, she could read people like a book. Later, someone who knew her would say, When I met her, she could hardly read and had a lot of trouble writing, but she's a very bright, charming woman. She can be mean on occasion, but she's able to look at a problem, analyze it, and solve it, and that's what she did with people. Rose was the matriarch of the entire operation, and if her younger psychic started having difficulty with a client, Rose would take over and suddenly that client would be writing checks for 5, 10, 15 times as much money as before. Rose was awfully convincing. But there was one client who took up most of Rose's time. Her most impressive client, her cash cow. In 1991, the romance novelist Jude Devereaux a multimillionaire with dozens of books on the New York Times bestseller list, had walked through the door of Joyce Michael Astrology in Manhattan. Jude was desperate in those days. Suicidal. Her marriage was falling apart. She couldn't get pregnant. She was in love with someone else. And so she walked into Rose's world, looking for help. To Jude, Rose seemed to have an authentic connection to the spirit world. She knew things. She predicted that Jude's husband would file for divorce, which he did. She said that the divorce papers would be delivered between 4 and 5 p.m., and she was right. Of course, Jude had no idea that Rose had hired a private investigator to spy on her. Jude just knew that Rose was telling her things that were starting to come true. And so she asked Rose to work for her full time. And Rose responded that her fee was $1 million dollars a year. Jude paid it. She thought it was a good deal. For one million dollars a year, she would be able to call Rose for guidance at any hour of the day or night, and Rose promised to bring her health, happiness, love, and a baby. And best of all, Rose said that when she was done, she was going to repay Jude every single penny of that one million dollars a year, minus a modest $1,200 for her services. Yes, Rose was good. Good enough to demand a million dollars a year. Good enough to get it. But try as she might to tell the future... She, too, could be surprised, suddenly, by death. In the mid-2000s, Rose lost both of her parents, and then her husband, and her seven-year-old grandson in the span of about three years. It almost broke her, those four losses. Reeling with grief, she turned to pills and alcohol and gambling— Her youngest son, Michael, noticed that his mother's personality was changing. She was snappier than normal, angry all the time. She was blowing millions of dollars at casinos, and she didn't seem to care. "'I lost control over everything,' Rose said later. "'I allowed my addictions to take over.'" Through this haze of grief and booze, Rose continued to work, but she mostly stayed behind the scenes. Instead of dealing directly with clients, she'd delegate, telling her family members to direct their clients' cash through a complicated maze of bank accounts and pseudonyms. After decades in the business, Rose was still at the top. Now, though, she was up there all alone, devastated by tragedy that she'd been unable to predict. And then the tough son of a New York City cop entered her life. Meet Charlie Stack, detective, the only cop in the Fraud Investigations Unit at the Fort Lauderdale Police Department who had an accounting degree. On any given week, Charlie Stack was drowning in Ponzi schemes and mortgage fraud. And so when his sergeant tossed a new case onto his desk in April 2007 and Charlie saw that it was about fortune telling, he was tempted to roll his eyes. But when he took a closer look at the case, he saw that beneath all the racket about spirits and premonitions, there were real people who were getting seriously hurt. The case involved a storefront called Joyce Michael Astrology and a woman who was missing several thousand dollars, a client of Joyce Michael's. Her complaint had originated in New York, but trickled down to Florida because, according to bank records, that's where her money had ended up. When Charlie traced her money further, he noticed a suspicious pattern. There was a spider web of accounts involved, and all of them fed into larger accounts for people called Rose Marks and Joyce Michael. The smaller accounts were receiving deposits of thousands of dollars, but the accounts for Rose and Joyce took in painfully large sums. $250,000 here, 300000 there. Charlie couldn't believe it. I'm going, this is for fortune-telling, he said. His colleagues thought the case was silly. It involved a bunch of sobbing women who believed in a whole lot of woo-woo nonsense and who had willingly handed over their money to these fortune-tellers. As police like to say in cases like this, nobody put a gun to their heads. But Charlie felt like he was on to something big here. And so, for the next four and a half years, Charlie investigated the matriarchy of Rose Marks. He surveilled her family from Manhattan down to Florida, taking thousands of photos, recording their phone calls, even sifting through their garbage where he found things like empty Cartier boxes. They all had nicknames, just like mob figures, he said. When you watched them out at night, they acted like they were mobsters. They partied hard, they spent money hard, they lived large. Rose went by Pinky, and it wasn't unusual for her to blow through $100,000 in a single month. Their fancy watches and expensive cars were paid for by clients so damaged that it made Charlie's blood boil. There was the British solicitor whose husband refused to have children with her, then announced that he was leaving her, got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and died— leaving a secret vial of his frozen sperm to a younger woman. There was the Japanese woman whose brain was crawling with tumors and who had spent so much money on psychic services that she was about to lose her home. There was the schizophrenic Turkish man mourning the death of his father, convinced that the voices he was hearing were spirits. Often, when Charlie was interviewing Rose's clients, they started weeping with shame. They couldn't believe how they'd gotten there, how they'd given all their money to a fortune teller. When a victim fell into Rose's web, Rose would keep them there by growing more and more intense with them. She'd call them in the middle of the night, frantic, saying, Run to the bank! This is a spiritual emergency! She'd be cruel, and then kind, and then cruel again. She'd say, Calm down, calm down, you're getting hysterical. She'd tell them that if they didn't continue working with her, their lives would be utterly destroyed. Even when her predictions backfired, like when one client's supposed soulmate ended up in bed with another woman, Rose would not let them escape. If they asked for their money back, she'd tell them that she'd been forced to sacrifice it, or that only Michael the Archangel knew where it really was. If they really protested, Her clients might wake up one day to find Rose's lawyer at their door, holding a pathetic check and an agreement for them to sign that said they had never been the victim of fraud at the Marks family hands. It was the sort of situation that sounded outrageous until you found yourself inside it, twisting and turning in Rose's web, unsure how you even got there in the first place. To prove that Rose and her family members could not, in fact, tell the future... Charlie Stack asked some of their victims to feed the psychics false stories. The psychics were never able to tell the truth from the lies. On January 15, 2008, Charlie Stack knocked on Jude Devereaux's door and told her that Rose Marks, her $1 million-a-year psychic, was a fraud. Jude didn't believe him at first. She was living in a motel at the time. She was suicidal again. Seventeen years ago, when she met Rose, she may have been miserable, but at least she had her money, her properties, and her health and now she had nothing at all. Her husband had gotten everything in the divorce, and Rose was quickly draining the rest of her finances. Over the past 17 years, Jude had given Rose about $17 million. $1 million a year, Rose's fee. For all of those years, though, Jude had believed in Rose because Rose had worked a miracle, in 1997, when Jude was 50 years old, she finally gave birth to a son, as Rose had promised she would. Jude and her son had moved to rural North Carolina. After all, Jude could no longer afford to live in New York, since Rose was taking so much of her money. But mother and son were happy there in North Carolina. They had a little house, there was nature all around. Her son, Sam, loved to fish and hunt but those old dark forces that Rose was never able to control were still operating, just out of sight. And on October 6, 2005, they descended on Jude. Her son Sam was out late, playing, when a truck careened down their little country road and hit him, killing him. He was only eight years old. This broke Jude completely, And Rose was there, waiting to catch her. Rose arranged it all. She arranged the funeral, arranged the sale of Jude's house, kept the money, and moved Jude down to Florida. Rose told Jude that they couldn't stop working together now or else Sam's soul would be thrown into hell. Rose told Jude that she was going to die and be reincarnated and then have another son and also marry the actor Brad Pitt in her second life, and Jude believed it all. Later, Jude would admit that her willingness to believe was, frankly, unbelievable. But at the time, she was in such a fog of despair that Rose's stories didn't look like fraud to her. They looked like a lifeline. And so when Charlie Stack knocked on her motel door and told her that he was investigating Rose Marks, a.k.a. Joyce Michael, for fraud, Jude didn't believe him. She couldn't at first. But eventually, when he laid out enough evidence, he convinced her. And she said, It was like someone hit me with a hammer. I realized it was all a scam. Three and a half years later, Charlie's investigation was finally finished. On Tuesday, August 16, 2011, Rose Marks and eight of her family members were arrested and charged with 61 counts of wire fraud, mail fraud, conspiracy to commit mail fraud and wire fraud, and money laundering. Fortune-telling itself is not illegal, and neither is belief in spirits, and so the case against the Marks family always centered around money. Before long, all eight of Rose's family members pled guilty. They were ordered to pay back millions of dollars in restitution to their victims, and they were given fairly short sentences, a few years in prison for some, a little bit of probation for others, or several months of house arrest. Only Rose refused to admit that she'd done anything wrong. And so, in August 2013, she went to trial. Many of her former clients took the stand, including Jude Devereux. They told the courtroom everything—how sad they'd been, how much they dared to hope, how much they'd lost. Not everyone in the courtroom was terribly sympathetic. At points, both the judge and Rose's defense lawyer expressed skepticism at their stories, wondering how anyone in the world could be so gullible. Many of these victims were wealthy, educated people. What in the world were they thinking, selling their houses because a fortune teller told them that Michael the Archangel wanted them to do it? At one point, when the federal prosecutor tried to argue that Rose's schemes were sophisticated, the judge snapped back, It's ridiculous! It's absurd! How is it sophisticated? It's a completely ridiculous story that some people actually believe or were convinced to believe was possible or true. The stories were, in their way, ridiculous. One of the victims admitted that she'd been conned into buying her fortune teller a vacuum cleaner because the quote-unquote spirits wanted a new one. But on the witness stand, the victims didn't really try to justify their behavior. They just tried to explain how powerless they'd felt. Whatever Joyce Michael told me to do, I did, said one of them. Another said, I was doing things I wouldn't normally do. I don't take crap from anybody. I don't let anybody boss me around. It was just the strangest feeling. It was as if someone just spun me around. Despite all the talk of spirits, Rose's trial was really about the rather prosaic question of fraud. The question was simple it was not, do spirits exist, or can some people tell the future? It was, Did Rose promise to return her client's money and then refuse to return it? After nearly a month of testimony, it was pretty obvious to the jury that the answer was yes. They found her guilty on all counts. Today, Rose is serving her 10-year sentence in a federal prison in Illinois. She regrets her behavior, and yet she believes that she's innocent, according to her sons. Her clients were her friends, she says. Her friends. That's precisely what she called them at her sentencing, as she sobbed out her apology. We grew old together and shared very intimate details of our lives with one another, she cried. Those once-in-a-lifetime friendships I have lost forever, and I will regret that for the rest of my life. Did Rose know that she was doing something wrong, or did she honestly think she was just helping her friends? Her youngest son, Michael, thinks that something changed when she lost her husband, grandson, and parents. I think that she probably started making promises to her clients, he says. I think that the gambling addiction had a lot to do with the decisions that she made toward the end. Charging more money, asking for more money. That being said, Michael doesn't believe his mother committed a crime. He thinks she provided a service. A solace, even. And anyway, he says, she's not all that unique. There's nothing that she did that any other fortune tellers don't do, he says. I think it just got under a microscope because of the investigation that was going on. The tragedy at the heart of Rosemark's life was that whether or not she believed in her own promises almost didn't matter. She'd been raised to tell fortunes. She'd been working since she was a little girl. She never had a chance at another way of life. In 2016, her family sent a letter to the judge who had sentenced her, begging him to withdraw his judgment. Her offenses have been very much a part of our culture. The letter ran. This was her understanding, but that is done now and will remain so understandably. As soon as Rose was born a girl, her fate was laid out for her. No one put a gun to her head. And yet. I think it's tragic, says Michael, her son. She's a very intelligent woman. She could have been the president. At the age of 65, Rose earned her GED in prison. Her family praised this accomplishment in that same letter to the judge. May not seem like much, but for the Romani community, it's a major achievement, considering she's never gone to school and hardly knew how to read or write, the letter said. Her family's request for the judge to withdraw his judgment, as well as all of her petitions for early release, have been denied. Jude Devereaux and Charlie Stack have become good friends. He even introduced her to the art of boxing, which helped her re-enter the real world and start writing again. These days, she's writing murder mysteries and spends almost half of every year on a world cruise where she writes like a fiend, according to her website. When something rotten happens to me, I can often settle my mind by figuring how to put the incident in a novel, she declares. Now that I'm writing murder mysteries, I have a list of people I want to kill. And as Rose serves her time in prison, people all over the world continue to squeeze what they can out of those who dare to believe. In the spring of 2019, the New York Times published a piece called Psychic Mediums are the New Wellness Coaches, and then another titled Venture Capital is Putting Its Money into Astrology, which identified the mystical services market as worth $2.1 billion. The world of belief is a tangled web. Some who offer belief are prosecuted, others are praised. Some believers go to the cops, others stay faithful until the end. Everyone wants to believe in something. Everyone longs for solid ground. This longing makes humans tender and hopeful and open and able, of course, to be tricked. While Silicon Valley tries to extract money from crystals, Rose's son, Michael, says that in the storefronts where Rose used to run her empire, new fortune-telling shops have opened up. It's kind of like the mafia, he says. You eliminate one family. All you're doing is creating an open territory for another family to take over. And somewhere, a grieving woman is looking at a little window, all lit up, and wondering if she should walk through the door. Is it a sin? Is it a crime to tell fortunes? Oh, no, it is not technically a crime to tell fortunes, everyone. It is, however, a crime to commit fraud. So what did you think of this story, guys? I will tell you what I think of it. I think it was perfect. No, I'm just kidding. What I I think is intriguing about this story are two things. First of all, I do think it's interesting that it's fortune telling is not illegal, but fraud is. And so what Rose did obviously veered off into fraud and became very illegal, but it started out somewhere that is not illegal, but that a lot of people don't believe is true, but that some people very passionately believe is true. And I just think it's really, that sphere is really interesting um, because there's a, there's something like, you know, the law shouldn't be telling people what to believe if someone wants to spend a lot of money at a fortune teller's, that should be their right. But what Rose did so clearly became really damaging and did end her her up with a 10-year prison sentence. But I can't really pinpoint where on the slippery slope it, like... Like, clearly there was a time when it clicked over into crime. But was that the first time she asked someone for a lot of money? Was she always like, I'm never going to return it? Or was it okay for a while, and then the first time she asked someone for like, oh, I don't know, a million dollars, it became a crime. I don't know. I just find it interesting to think about. And the other thing that I, intrigues me about this story is really the idea that Rose was put on this path from when she was in the third grade. And that makes her... tragic figure to me even though she did do a lot of damage a lot of damage guys a lot of damage but there is something about her just sort of being shoved down this path from when she was eight or nine you know that's not exactly what happens with a lot of criminals that we cover it's not like they're eight years old and their mom's like well now you have to become a murderer (laughs) but with Rose there is this sense of inevitability like what happened to her was sort of laid out for her By her parents, sort of. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Again, this story can be found in even greater detail in my book, Confident Women, which is out February 23rd. You can go to Instagram.com slash criminal broads to see photos of the characters in this episode. I would like to thank my, I'll say my trifecta of perfect new patrons for this episode. Thank you to Nyree to Julia F., and to Ken R. for supporting this podcast and making episodes like this possible. Everyone else, if you'd like to give $1 a month or $3 a month to the the Criminal Broads Pyramid Scheme, you can go to patreon.com backslash criminalbroads to support the podcast. And next week, I'll meet you all back here for our monthly interview episode where we are going to talk to a crime-obsessed broad about the state of true crime today. And she's going to walk us through it because she knows a lot about it. All right. I'll see you back here next Wednesday. And until then, I'll say it. I'll be bold and say it. I hope you have a really good croissant this week. And if you are intolerant to gluten, I hope you have a really good gluten-free croissant, if that exists. All right. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong Loving you, dear, like I do If it's a crime, then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Seeking the truth never gets old.